0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Roberta Jacobson joined our State Department 32 years ago as a young analyst and rose over the decades through Republican and Democratic administrations uh, to become Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, where she helped negotiate the normalization of Uh, relations with Cuba under the Obama administration, and ambassador to Mexico at a very freighted time uh, between our countries. She's now a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and I sat down with her earlier this week, shortly after President Trump spoke to the UN General Assembly to talk about U.S. relations with Mexico, NAFTA, the situation at the border, and the state of American diplomacy. Roberta Jacobson, welcome here and welcome to the Institute of Politics. We're so happy to have you as a fellow uh, this quarter. Thank you. Looking forward. Happy to to be here. Looking forward to that. Come from Jersey. Yeah. I just did a proudly. uh, Just had a conversation with Peter Sagal, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, who is another another Jersey guy. A
2: lot of distinguished alumni. Yes, exactly,
1: (laughs) exactly, and. you come from... Present company, accepted. Englewood Cliffs. Englewood Cliffs. New Jersey. hmm And your folks, you have kind of a public service background. Yeah. Uh, you're. Tell me about that.
2: Well, you know, I, I tell a lot of people that there was a point in our lives when all three of us, my siblings, I have a twin brother and an older sister, and we were all in the public sector. I was at the State Department... My brother was a public defender in New Jersey, and my sister worked for the New York State Department of Developmental Disabilities in the deinstitutionalization of Willowbrook. And people literally in the town I grew up would offer my father condolences. Um, Here you had these incredibly expensive college educations, and all your kids were in the public sector not making money. But for my parents, it was an absolute point of pride. They were thrilled with that. I grew up with parents who were the antithesis of bowling alone. They were they were joiners and leaders. My mom was a former teacher in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and she became eventually a chairman of the Board of Education having been the PTA head and all of those things. In your community. Yeah, in Mm -hmm. Anglewood Cliffs, where I grew up. And my dad was head of the voluntary, all of these were voluntary civic groups. My dad was head of what was called the Board of Adjustment, which was essentially the zoning board in the town. And we were a town that runs right along the Palisades, overlooking the Hudson River, just north of um, the GW Bridge. And uh, I also tell people that since my dad worked in Jersey City, my... Trip home with him when I worked with him one summer was the opening credits of the soprano right? <laughs> all all the way up up the New Jersey Turnpike to the north. and um but for them, it was really important. Um, why?
1: You know, what was their background, by the way? Where'd your families come from? Well, well, they
2: did the classic Eastern European Jewish migration family that came some through Ellis Island, including my grandfather, who was my mother's father, who was born in Romania and came here when he was two. And we found the manifest. Uh, for when he and his mother arrived. Um, my dad's family came through Boston and Connecticut down to New York. And they had—they were from Belarus originally, my mom's family from Romania. Um, and they were much more assimilated. Um, both families ended up in Brooklyn, uh, in Flatbush. And my dad's parents were both lawyers. His mother was the first woman admitted to the bar in mm. Brooklyn. Um, his uh, aunt, my great aunt, was the commissioner of human resources, which was essentially the welfare commissioner under Mayor Koch. Have in New York, having gotten her Ph.D. in economics from Columbia in 1938. Wow! So for a Jewish woman to to get her Ph.D. in economics, this was a very distinguished family. Um, and so my mom's family felt a little a little intimidated by <laughs> those folks. My my grandfather was. Um, Fats Waller's lawyer, uh, during many of his trials. Um, That's cool. His trials. Yes. Um, had, a, had a... He a, had some run Difficulties, with yes. The, yes. Yeah, in the- um, and so, you know, they were from families that felt, you know, families of the Depression, families who felt committed to public service. Um, my mom went to Smith College, um, first in her family to go to college. My grandfather and my grandmother left school in high school to go to work. Um, My father came from a a more educated family, if you will, higher education. He started out at MIT um, as a young man and then uh, enlisted in the uh, Second World War and shunning the help of his family, including an uncle who was uh, Treasury Secretary Morgenthau's chief of staff. He was an engineer in Patton's army and had uh, three purple hearts and was wounded both in Battle of the Bulge subsequently, but also in Normandy. He never made it to the beach in Normandy. He was knocked out by uh, getting off the landing craft, which is probably good because the engineers were among the first onto the beach and they took heavy casualties. But after he had severe frostbite in the Battle of the Bulge, his father said to him, okay, enough. Um, we're going to get you doing something else. And he started doing work on aerial photographic interpretation um, for—it was Army Air Corps and then work that eventually became uh, part of the OSS and uh, and that beginning of the intelligence community. But they both really believed deeply that they had been very lucky, very—they were grateful for what the country gave to them. The families Well, let moved. me ask you something about
1: yeah. that— um. We're going to talk a little bit later about immigration because that was clearly uh, a big issue for you uh, right. a, as the ambassador to Mexico. Right. Um, did your family's history inform your thinking, feelings about that issue? I think or do, it, I should say, does it?
2: I, I think it does. Um, I think part of what... Um, makes me feel as strongly as I do about immigration in this country is the fact that I had family that came here during periods when there were lots of signs on places that said no Germans, no Irish, no Jews, um, who felt their own forms of um, discrimination, although many of them did extremely well, and who were able to make that progression from the Lower East Side to Brooklyn to the suburbs of New York um, in New Jersey and see that classic um, social mobility of the United States that immigrants found.
1: Yeah, the, the, the thing that if uh, if the president were here uh, or his supporters, they'd say, well, that, they were legal immigrants. They came legally, but that, that that's that, that's undercut know. by the fact that the president, the president is trying to reduce legal to immigration reduce as well, legal, legal immigration. and
2: refugees and all sorts of categories. The other thing is, you know, when we found the manifest of my grandfather's trip here, he's the only one that was born somewhere else, and we have his birth certificate and know his original name. But the the manifest of the of the boat to Ellis Island has three people listed. Um, one is clearly his mother. One is him, and there's a fourteen year old girl. Now he didn't have a fourteen year old sister. Um she was most likely the child of relatives or a neighbor. People did that all the time. So he was lucky enough to come in legally, but indeed they were if you will smuggling in someone yeah. not related to them, um who wouldn't have perhaps gotten in otherwise. So that question of they came legally um I think is a, is a fluid one. Mm-hmm. Um and yes, they did, um, but others in the family didn't earlier. And, you know, I think the the benefits that they were able to accrue through education, which was really drummed into me, that, that education is your social mobility. That's the way you move up. You, you get educated, but you'll give back. Um, it was really important to my family. My brother sat on a board of education in his town for 15 years. My sister has also done immense amounts of volunteer work. I raised my kids going to pack boxes of food at homeless shelters. And I see it less and less among communities like me, but it's, it's the way I was brought up.
1: So you responded to all of this by <laughs> trying to be a dancer. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well that was a different story because my mom my mom and dad are both were both tall. My mother knew her children were gonna be tall, her daughters, and my mom said, Well, I'm very klutzy and I walk into furniture and I want my daughters to be more graceful than I am. So she put both my sister and I into ballet. I started at age four, took it for about ten years till I broke two vertebrae in my back. Um, and then I went back to it as a high school student in modern dance, and when I went to college I was looking for schools that had strong political science and international relations departments and good dance and theater departments because I didn't know which I wanted and to my mother's enormous relief I chose the political science international relations was one Was
1: that a, a recognition of the of of uh, your Capacities as a dancer. Yeah, I mean, or a,
2: part of it was knowing that I was never going to be good enough to do it as a profession, and I think part of it was knowing that I I like to eat, um, <laughs> and I just you know I I couldn't live on the diet of coffee and apples that half the dancers at college did.
1: Although uh, studying international relations isn't always a, a a route to to riches and
2: no and. Um, and as I said, even my brother, who got the the cherished law degree, went and became a public defender initially. So, um, what but,
1: attracted you international relations? But
2: for me, I was at college from, and I'll you know convey my age here, from seventy eight to eighty two, and when I looked around the world at where things were happening, and I spoke a little bit of Spanish, so I thought that you know I would continue with that. But Latin American countries were just emerging from military authoritarianism as as yeah. laboratories for political science and democracy. Peru first in 1980, uh, then others after. It seemed to me just a fascinating place, and the rhythm and the music of the place didn't didn't hurt of the region. Didn't hurt as a dancer either. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, you you pursued a master's degree, and then you went to the State Department.
2: Mm-hmm. I went to the United Nations in between college and grad school which is where i went my husband working in the secretariat and then went back to grad school up in what Boston. was that experience like well it was interesting because i was at the un just after ambassador Jean kirkpatrick oh goodness, under yeah. president legendary Rankin, figure said you know so let the un leave we'll be waving from the dock so when we think that currently we may be in this sort of anti-UN or anti-international organization period. You know, we, we've we had others. Um, and to be an American working in the secretariat when that was the policy was fairly hostile towards the UN was an interesting experience and very useful in some ways. You
1: know, ways. it's a timely conversation because the president was at the UN mm. this week and he talked about uh, the ideology of globalism Right. Uh, versus the virtue of patriotism, uh, and r- pretty much railed against global institutions as encroaching on the the uh, uh, sovereignty uh, on or, the sovereignty or, or of, nations, of of countries, yeah. and talked about how the United States had been taken advantage of. Um, what what strikes you about that? Having spent your life in diplomacy, but also having spent your early years of the U.N., and as you point out, hearing some of these arguments before. Yeah.
2: You know, I think the whole idea that patriotism or sovereignty of nation states and engagement in the world or global conceptions are antithetical is just absurd. Um, I think you can take almost any employee or ambassador who's working at the United Nations And they will tell you they are proud citizens of whatever country they're from. And that doesn't diminish their commitment to seeing us, even as we organize politically as nation states, try and make the world as a whole a better place. A role that the United States has played for decades, if not centuries, um, without Well, certainly since World War II, the United States has played a major role in organizing the the international order,
1: including the United Nations.
2: Which has served not incidentally for our benefit. Um, There are many who would criticize that international order because they think it worked to our benefit. But the fact is that it has been good for us, for peace and stability and prosperity in the world and for the United States.
1: You know, uh, the president argued in his speech, and he's argued before, and you've heard John Bolton, his national security advisor and others, argue that... uh, that the United States bears too much of the burden. Mm -hmm. uh, And that is where the being taken advantage of uh, comes from. But uh, it is, as you point out, an investment in uh, stability, an investment in in trying to find peaceful solutions, because the burden of war also falls most heavily on the United States.
2: Exactly. And we have to remember that having an all-volunteer army for the, since Vietnam, it falls disproportionately on those who have less in the United States. Um, but I also think that when you're talking about burden-sharing and responsibility of other countries to be to step up and be part of those institutions, I think that's a fair point. I think we've been arguing on that point at the UN for a long time through Democratic and Republican administrations. The difference now, I think, is that edge that says, A, we're being taken advantage of, because that has an air of of, of being aggrieved in ways that, that I don't think we are. I think we're stronger than that. But second of all, there are ways to ask, demand, um, exhort your uh, other countries to pay their full share of the dues, to to the U.N. or to NATO. look at the formulas to NATO or the OAS they where don't, we pay it, they're 66%. They're not dues. In NATO's case, it's, right. it's their, it's, their, their, it's their portion right, of, their, of the their defense, their own defense budget yeah. of the 2%. Or the OAS, the Organization of American States, which we helped create where we pay two-thirds. Uh, maybe that's not the way it should be. But that's a debate that's worth having, um, not a, a complaint – or a justification for leaving, or or upending the system.
1: Uh, we'll come back to this. You you went so you went to the State Department, right? And you did a stint. Uh, you I, I assume on loan from the State Department at the National Security Council. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you were there in an interesting time because yeah. you were there a, again under. The, at the end of the Reagan administration, right. into were you there into the Bush administration or did you go back to state? No,
2: I went back to state. That was part of a rotation of a program that I came into state under, which was um, is now called the Presidential Management Fellowship out of grad school. And so I did rotations at the NSC in part because... Dick Clark, uh, Richard Clark, who has served many presidents, was my boss at state and had done something like this and felt that I should. Uh, I did a stint uh, in the policy bureau. I was in intelligence and research. I was an analyst. did a stint in the policy bureau um, in Latin America and a a stint overseas at the embassy in Argentina where I had studied previously.
1: So you got there uh, at an interesting time because it was right after the Iran-Contra Uh, scandal where right. there uh, in which uh, the administration was caught trading arms for uh, hostages. hostages yeah. uh, were there reverberations of that when you were there? Yeah, well, especially there were, you. You were involved with Latin America. Well, there so. were.
2: You know, there weren't. I didn't sense as many. Po- I was fairly obviously junior G man at the time, but yeah. but I do remember that where we were operating, the few of us that were doing some intelligence analysis for the Situation Room. We were physically operating in the office that Ali North had had, um, you know, and people would show you to your office and say, "Look, this is where all the documents were shredded," and I think
1: Ali North, being the although, officer at the right, NSC who was the lieutenant you know, culpable at the, for at at the, the time, plot.
2: right? And um, and I think although there were jokes about it, there was an edge to those jokes in the sense that everybody that I worked with. Was cognizant that that had put the NSC um, way over its mandate into, re- regardless of whether or not you thought in Ollie North's words or the president's word that it was a neat idea, which I did not and many didn't, but the NSC is not supposed to be an operational body. It's a deliberative body. It's a coordinating body. Th- this is something that, that still bothers me both about that time and the, the lessons we learned but also subsequently when it's kind of creeped back into that operational role that I don't think it was meant to have.
1: This is a, uh, this is a big debate. I know when I was in the White House, there was disconsternation at State and at the, at the Pentagon about the, 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 the role of yeah. the NSC and the White House staff.
2: And I think that's a, there's a hearty perennial nature of that, too. Mm-hmm. There's a healthy tension between the agencies and the NSC, Um, But I think when you step over that line where uh, White House or NSC staff are issuing instructions to ambassadors or um, going outside the Secretary of State in the chain, uh, or the Secretary of Defense for that matter, then you're running a real danger, not because those may not be good people or qualified people at times, but it was not set up to do that. It's a small staff, even though it's grown in many you know, over the years. And the checks on <laughs> the checks on crazy um, are designed to go through the deliberative process that the agencies have with the NSC to be thoroughly vetted for the, oh, what about this angle? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what gets lost when that, small body becomes operational checks on crazy
1: are good we count on that you know yeah
2: not doing stupid bleep yeah. which is
1: a good idea. exactly exactly <laughs> um i re- look when i was there a uh, the president made um a fateful decision about uh troops in afghanistan right. long process uh that was uh, organized by the NSC, right. and you could see the tension between yeah. the different players, uh,
2: and that's what the process is designed to elicit. Um, I went through that in the summer of 2014 with the unaccompanied children crisis, by which time I was Assistant Secretary, and we had this was
1: the flow of children from Central, Central America, America, right? The the first the border, time we yeah. had
2: that, most of them not with a parent, right? Mm-hmm. And and so. This was an interesting hybrid because it was both NSC and folks from the Homeland Security part of, of the White House. And um, and we, at one point, were meeting every other day, which gave you very little time to complete assignments betw- between classes. But, but it was because it was so hard and it was important that we really thrash out. And there were some real thrashings, some of the ideas that had come up. Um, and And that was, and the ideas that that ended up carrying the day were better for it
1: in In two thousand, uh, you were assigned to Peru right. as the De- deputy chief of mission at the u s embassy. This engendered a huge bruhaha because you hadn't gone come through the foreign, foreign service. service right. Right. Why was that such a
2: yeah, I I was a civil service at State because my husband's work was domestic, and I chose to be a civil servant. And I knew that that meant I wasn't going to serve in some of the same positions that Foreign Service officers do as they come up through the ranks. But I was asked to be the DCM in Peru by, by a, one of my bosses who became the ambassador. And my response was yes, as I have so many other times when people have asked me to do something— And the department um, in its personnel system said, we can do this. This is within the scope of our collective bargaining agreement with the American Foreign Service Association. AFSA, or the American Foreign Service Association, did not see it the same way. And the argument they made, which I understood, was, look, we wouldn't care if you were going to be an ambassador. Lots of non-foreign service people become ambassadors. But DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission, is often the highest position we can aspire to, and it should not be available to civil servants. And so I arrived in Peru um, because the director general and others at the State Department said, you're approved, you can go, with my husband, who was telecommuting from EPA, an 11-month-old, a three-year-old, and two months later, the Foreign Service Grievance Board said, you have to leave. Um, And it was a pretty eventful time in Peru. (laughs) I
1: mean, this wasn't
2: any sort of idle appointment. No, this was just as Fujimori was sort of collapsing his administration when the videos that his spymaster had made were beginning to be revealed, um, revealing bribes and corruption uh, up and down the Peruvian political elite, uh, roiling the waters, resulting ultimately in Montesinos, the spymaster, fleeing to Venezuela, briefly, um, and ultimately Fujimori fleeing to Japan, to mm-hmm. his home country, knowing that Japan did not extradite its nationals, and he had dual citizenship. And there
1: was a truth and reconciliation There, commission. There was
2: ultimately a commission, but we were involved deeply in what was called the Windsor Process, which The case of Fujimori's shutting down Congress some years earlier and ruling by decree, yes, was taken to the OAS. And at a meeting, an OAS General Assembly that was held in Windsor in Canada that year, it became known as the Windsor Process, in which the states of the region were called upon to help Peru go through that transition back to democracy. It was... A a very successful process. I joke with people that I was... an example of where global institutions can have a real impact. And, you know, I was in Peru for two years and three presidents. And ultimately, Madeleine Albright, who was secretary at the time, had the ability to overturn the Foreign Service Grievance Board on foreign policy grounds. And she did. And so she gave me two years instead of three, which would have been a normal tour. Um, And they were some of the most fascinating of my life.
1: And you came back and ran the uh, the office of Mexican right. affairs at state right. at also an interesting time in Mexico. Vicente Fox had right. overturned the long-standing yeah. uh, uh, party dominance mm-hmm. of the PRI in Mexico
2: and was really opening things up in the political side. If you could argue that he's still
1: outspoken, <laughs> had, has a few <laughs> views that he expresses from time to time, he,
2: colorfully. Yes, um, but you know it was. Mexico opened economically with NAFTA in 1994 and, and, and really before Salinas had that vision. It didn't open politically until much later, 2000 and beyond. But one of the things I think is that's lost in the NAFTA debate today is that NAFTA was never just a trade agreement. It was, the Mexicans like to say, un cambio de chip. It was a change in the chip, uh, in the the whole way of thinking in Mexico about opening to the world, including being willing to allow scrutiny of Mexico's own human rights record and institutions. Fox passed the first Freedom of Information Act law and created an institute to run that. He tried to get civil service reform. Um, The Congress became more of a player instead of a rubber stamp. Governors from other parties took power, and some of the power became, some power was decentralized. So it was a really interesting time in Mexico, but it was also a time when Colombian drug lords, having largely been vanquished in terms of their control of the cocaine industry, the Mexican cartels were on the rise and moving into that territory. Which
1: led you to your next uh, assignment. (laughs) Uh, they talk about that. You 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 ran the Merida Initiative.
2: Yeah, the Merida the- Initiative is 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 both fascinating and often misunderstood because, like Plan Colombia, it is a foreign assistance program, right? Of much smaller scope, uh, Mexico being an OECD country and. And never having accepted U.S. aid in the past, right? This was something they never wanted for sovereignty reasons. But I think under President Calderon, there was a recognition... Who
1: succeeded Fox.
2: Who succeeded President Fox from the same party, the PON. Um, There was a recognition not only that they needed the help and expertise that we could bring, but also that if this really was shared responsibility, as Secretary Clinton said later, but but we began to talk about... um, then we had to be part of the solution in both countries, not just by reducing demand, but helping the Mexicans confront the the trade. And um, when people say the Merida Initiative failed because there are still drugs coming in or there's still violence, I think the thing to remember is that the initiative itself was a process. The initiative itself is not how much money is in the U.S. budget, considerably less than there used to be, or what things are being done with it. It's the process of sitting down u s government to Mexican government and deciding what are our joint priorities, where are we going to spend that money? Where are the Mexicans going to spend theirs um, and that has to be agile and has to shift because the cartels the the transnational criminal organizations are always more agile than governments they're always ahead of us they they don't respect boundaries or laws it's it, you know those constraints don't get in their way and so and so. It has to be shifting, otherwise it won't be responding to the the threat of the day.
1: And where do you think we are? I, I don't want to jump ahead because I do want to uh, there are some intervening things that I need to talk to you about, but uh, where do you where do you think we are today? Because the impression is that uh, things have actually deteriorated, and that violence is is more pervasive now than right. it was, and that you know the that parts of the country are really being terrorized by. Uh, you know, by, there, by the drug cartel.
2: And it's certainly true. And if you look at homicides that are drug-related, there can be no doubt that they are at you know historic highs, twenty-nine to 31,000 people dying last year That's in astonishing. Mexico. Um, astonishing. And what I also remind people is we had over 60,000 people dying in this country of overdoses, forty-five to 50,000 uh, of whom were opioid users. So... We don't, I hate the term drug war, but when Mexicans sometimes. Why do you hate it? Because it suggests a militaristic response to something that is a much more multifaceted um, phenomenon, and because it's become associated with this is a little bit of the same theme with what we sometimes call the hard side stuff whether you're giving armored vehicles or helicopters or, um, you know, things like that, and not what people say I think can be the most important part, which is reform of the judicial sector, training to your police, uh, vetting so that you know you've got honest cops. Those things get forgotten when you talk about a war on mm-hmm. drugs. But if we're talking about the body count, hell yes, it's a war. mm mm-hmm. um, and and and, but the Mexicans, in some ways, were highly successful. They'll tell you that of the one hundred and twenty two high value targets or head of cartels or kingpins, they've now killed or captured, extradited over one hundred and ten,
1: yeah, but the problem with that is that you, you know, That's then then the then, then the thing be- devolves correct. You know, correct. we saw this actually in Chicago. Uh, the uh, the 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 main sort of gang leaders in mm-hmm. Chicago were, prosecuted put in prison and what happened was that they were sort of businessmen exactly and they they you know who uh, approached it that way it was and a it devolved into all these logic, right, right. It, it devolved, not not to say they didn't belong in prison, but it devolved into kind of a, a thousand different right. fiefdoms fighting over street over corners. the same
2: it, turf. And that's exactly what's happened in Mexico. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. So you might have had five cartels when I first came to this issue, and now you have 20 or 25. And that could change six months from now, depending on who's up or who's down. and And so... It's fine to go after those high-value targets. I agree with you. Those people ought to be in jail. But if you don't go after the money and you don't go after the, the whole infrastructure, it's a little bit like saying, I, I want to muscle Walmart out of business, but I'm only going to focus on the CEO or Sam Walton when he existed, um, when he was alive. So you didn't end Walmart when Sam Walton died. You're not going to end the cartels by extraditing Chapo. You've got to look at these as transnational corporations, so you've got to focus on their consumers. Yes, you've got to focus on their supply chain, and on their financing. And why? And why isn't that being done? <laughs> it's slower. It's um, harder in some ways. Uh, that's ironic, but in some ways it's harder. The U.S. is—I don't believe that we've ever done against narcotics financing what we did, for better or worse, against terrorist financing. We haven't necessarily put in the same strictures. Some of that is because it's it's a huge problem. It's so much bigger in terms of the amount of money that's in the U.S. financial system. Um, But if we don't go after the money, and, and some of this I saw beginning to happen in Mexico, literally going after the accountants you know, Al Capone style, Mm -hmm. going after the guys who knew where the money was, which Mm -hmm. is critical.
1: And you were the ambassador to Mexico. Uh, You presumably were urging those kinds of actions. What kind of response did you get?
2: Uh, You know, the response, I think, at least while I was there, was mixed I don't think the current government in Mexico, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto's government, which is about to depart on December first after six years, I don't believe they ever had a security strategy. They had pieces of one, but but nothing comprehensive. Partly because he wanted to turn away from focus on security towards focus on the economic and commercial side. And whether you like talking about it or not, y- you it's hard have to separate got those to things. Ad- well, I think that's right, and I think also you have to you must attend to this or it grows and that's what happened. Um, You know, Mexico still has fewer police per hundred thousand than than any similar country. Um, It's got over four hundred thousand local and state cops and you know, a tenth of that at the federal level. They are a federal system like we are so you've got to work with the states but There's never really been a comprehensive effort. Now, I think on the financial side, there are powerful interests um, in Mexico who have not wanted. There are investigations done. There are often regulations put in place. But like so many other things in Mexico, the implementation is really um, paralyzed. The number of prosecutions on financial crimes is, is almost nil. Some are done if there's a connection to the United States in the U.S., but we really haven't seen Mexico go after the money in Mexico. But by the same token, I'm not sure we have. When we sit down with Mexico, we're constantly telling them what they should be doing in their financial system to make it more transparent, to know your customer, et cetera. And that's all true for anti-money laundering uh, legislation. But there are a lot of things we could be doing, too. Which would help that dialogue. And why don't we? I think partly because there is a concern um, about how much money might be affected. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about an industry that's estimated to be over $18 billion a year, probably significantly more. And it's very embedded in both financial institutions. Mm Mm -hmm. Real estate, financial institutions, all sorts of areas that, you know, would be difficult to pursue, um, but I think really need to be.
1: Politically difficult. Yes. I I need to talk to you about um, Cuba, Mm -hmm. because uh, you were involved in uh, negotiating the change in relationship. Right. First of all, you talk about... um, Sort of the the prerogatives of uh, different agencies and so on. This Cuba project began as a very clandestine conversation or series of conversations uh, between that Ben Rhodes ben and the White and House, Ricardo Zuniga at the White House, right? And, uh, uh, that uh, they met meeting in Canada with uh, with the Cubans, mm-hmm. the son of Raul Castro. Right. At what point did you did you know about those conversations?
2: No, not initially, and. Um, I was working very aggressively, um, both as Deputy Assistant Secretary and then later as Assistant Secretary, to try and get Alan Gross, the American Mm -hmm. who was put in jail for five years for bringing in communications... He was a USAID
1: contractor. Contractor, right. And he was trying to get uh, 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 communications equipment to people in the Jewish community down there. Right,
2: which I always thought was the height of irony because... Knowing the Jewish community in Cuba, as I do, they're probably one of the few who actually had connections to the outside world. They, they probably needed it less than many other communities. But regardless, we, we got an awful lot of money from Congress that we didn't know quite how to use at certain times, which was part of the problem. But Ben and Ricardo began those conversations. And um, what happened, in a sense, was as I was pursuing trying to get Alan released— Um, we got to about May, June, July, before the December announcement in 2014 that the president made of the opening of diplomatic relations. And there was a concern, I think, by, by them that, um, that we would get crosswise unless I was brought in. I I also think, and, and I haven't read Ben's book, so I have to, I don't know whether he deals with it, but, um... But I also think that um, the State Department detailee probably told me a little more than he was allowed to because he was a colleague and he knew I wasn't going to to reveal it. And I think in that particular case, when it has to be truly secret, when when you can't have things released prematurely because they're so sensitive, I, I think that is in some ways exactly what... A, a political appointee at the white house close to the president the, the cubans wouldn't have negotiated with anybody else at that point what
1: i should tell you but, parenthetically dick goodwin who was at the white house with with jfk uh tells a story about going to meet with che guevara uh back uh when uh after the, they were cuba was sanctioned after the revolution right. and uh They had these long conversations, and Guevara said, uh, do you like Cuban cigars? And Goodwin said, well, I I do, but, you know, they're sanctioned. I can't have them. And he got back to his hotel room, and there was a wooden box with the insignia of the revolution with these cigars (laughs) in them. And he flew back and landed on the south lawn of the White House and... uh, had this box of cigars, went into the Oval Office, put them down. JFK said, what's that? He said, cigars from Che Guevara. Kennedy flipped it open, grabbed a cigar, lit it up, looked at the cigar, looked at Gouin and said, I suppose I should have had you light the first one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. But, uh, but you know, th- th- those were clearly those were the same kind of conversations. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Um. And there had been others attempted over the years, and there were there were various things that made it work this time and and got allen released by by the summer um Ben briefed me on on what was happening and I have to say, all of it made sense to me, and i suspected and and it was fascinating because <laughs> during part of that period, I didn't know what secretary Kerry knew and I don't think he knew what I knew, so we talked very elliptically about these things until I was finally briefed in, and I knew he had been briefed in, of course, before, and when we were able to have conversations about it. But but one of the things that never occurred to me of the deals we might make um, was that normalizing diplomatic relations would be part of it. But it was the president understood that Cuba had become an irritant in all of our relationships in Latin America, that to an outsized degree, because the country had very little ability to make trouble anywhere anymore, it was continuing to rally people against us. And therefore, the reason for taking this step was he, would, he wanted to think of one thing that would change that whole conversation with the rest of the hemisphere, not, not just with Cuba. Mm-hmm. And he also understood that it was one of the things that the Cubans had never actually asked for because it worried them a little bit. Um, in the list of things they often gave me, Bill Richardson when he visited, others, that they wanted from us to release Alan Gross or have a better relationship, Normalization was never on their list. Well, I
1: think I was down there. We took a group of students uh, in Mm -hmm. 2015 from the IOP, and um, I went and met with some government officials who asked to see me when I was down there. And uh, maybe it was 2016. I think it was in the spring of 2016. Mm -hmm. They were concerned about the election and what the status of. And um, what was very clear when I was down there was that uh, the economic benefits – of opening up were pretty clear. But it was very hard to enjoy the economic benefits of opening up and maintain the kind of control that the government had maintained for for half a century. And
2: they had watched China and Vietnam, and they understood that those countries had managed to modernize economically without opening too much. But they thought geographically that would be impossible for them. So yeah. they've walked this tightrope. And, and in many ways, I don't think that Raul ever took advantage of the opening we were giving him. Yes, a lot more Americans could go and travel there. Um, but but there were other possibilities that Cuba had to make some reforms internally yeah. for them to work, and they never did. Yeah. They still well, haven't. Well, just
1: uh, experiencing the airport there was a— was an example yeah. uh, of that. Just one one thing on this, and I want to move on. Um, the The attack on the embassy, the sonic attack right. on the embassy. It's never the the provenance of that has never been established, but it became the pretext for the U.S. reversing uh, some of the policy.
2: Yeah, although um, the President Trump ran on reversing the policy mm-hmm. you know he went to miami and spurred by senator rubio and others gave a speech that was you know 30 years old it seemed mm-hmm. to me the rhetoric was so old and um so yes the the attacks gave you well, i call cover, it a pretext yeah cover for yeah. like removing people But, of course, they had changed the regulations and tightened them and done away with the individual people-to-people general license before... To make it more
1: difficult to travel. Correct. Correct. Um, What do you think... uh... What, what's your analysis of what happened there? Who? who what was the source of that attack? Are uh, there were diplomats there who were mm-hmm. damaged by some? Uh, what was right. apparently some sort of sonic attack?
2: Right, and you know there are still um, two dozen or so people who are being treated and and had what may be permanent damage, but now you've seen this in Guangzhou, in China. Um, there's some reporting which may or may not be similar that there was some incident in Kazakhstan years ago uh, with an AID person which may have been similar. Uh, you know, I, I know that right now a lot of attention is focused on Russia. Recent mm-hmm. articles suggesting that in fact the Russians yeah. may have been behind this. Um, I think what we can say is that whether or not the Cuban government carried out the attacks... Um, y- you can't do anything on that island without someone in government knowing. E- even people more sophisticated, perhaps than the, like the Russians or so forth. On the other hand, the people who knew may have been people who were not happy with the right. relationship because going forward because there was controversy. about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. uh, especially generationally. But, but my counterpart, for example, in the talks, Josefina Vidal. Yes. I who was, was about the same age as me and people were fascinated by two women negotiating mm-hmm. this but Josefina is is slightly younger than me so she's post-revolutionary and and I've met very few who are as hardline as she is so it's not only mm-hmm. age related yeah um and and so there were clearly people who did not want things to succeed and may have And what's the future do you think? I think it is what I've always believed, which is an inexorable opening and closeness. The astonishing thing that you probably found when you were there is no matter how bad the relationship gets or got in the past, Cubans really like Americans. Yeah. Um, and Americans who go there really like Cubans. Yeah. And my parents had their honeymoon there uh, before the revolution. Yeah. I, I think the The sad part is how long it's taking. It's but it, amazing, kind of. You go down there and you about. see the
1: cars on the street, and it's a, you, it's like stepping into a time yeah. war. I have to. Sure. I, I just have to. I can't let you go without talking about, um, uh, about Mexico. We started talking about NAFTA. This new agreement was negotiated after and. Um, first of all, I should ask you about the transition. You you went down there after some delay. Senator right. Rubio and others who were unhappy with Cuba right. held you up. You went down there. You started as the ambassador under the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. You ended as the ambassador under the Trump administration. That must have been quite a trans uh,
2: transformation. Yeah, it was. It was sort of head spinning. And I've been through. I think at that point I had been through five transitions. Right. Some of which were more hostile takeovers than others. But but this was extraordinary. And obviously, I was also in a more senior position. What I had to keep myself from remembering sometimes was that the other thing the ambassador is called, in a descriptive sense, is the president's personal representative. Um, and all of a sudden, I was President Trump's personal representative, and I was not asked to resign. I was the only ambassador in a G20 country Why career is
1: who was not... Um, you would think, given the provocations <laughs> really toward Mexico, I don't that I he know. would want his own person there right away. Yeah,
2: and I, I've not understood that, and there's nobody in the pipeline, and I left in May, um, partly because somebody who had been was a very close uh, friend of Secretary Tillerson's, and I think withdrew when he was fired, But um, which I don't know for sure. I just suspect kind of, that. Kind of
1: amazing that given everything that's happening between the two countries now that there's not even a nominee.
2: Right. I, I think it's extraordinary. Um, one of the early sort of um, bets of an ambassador was Tom Barrack, who's mm-hmm. close to the president, yes. but had his own reasons for not moving forward with it. Um, anyway, it, 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 it was a big change. And How do you, you,
1: given your sensibilities and belief structure, and you have a president now who's talking about building a wall, uh, who whose rhetoric toward Mexico was quite provocative, just hideous. Uh, I'm just trying to get crawl into your head here, and
2: it was an ugly place for a while. I think my head, I, you know, I think what for me the goal was: can I make a difference in this relationship? Even or maybe because there's a president who seems so hostile to Mexico. And so I stayed in part because I thought, well, well, let me see if I can make a difference. Let me see if I can make this relationship, put it back into a, a positive place. Um, the first visitor we had after the election from the Congress was Senator Flake, who was deeply committed to the relationship. The second from the Senate was John McCain. Mm -hmm. Um, and they talked so much about a Republican Party that was committed to this relationship, and and that was part of what gave me hope, was Secretary Tillerson and and Secretary Kelly, when he was at DHS, were there early in February. Um, But the day that they were there, right before we were due to go over to the foreign ministry and have our talks and a press conference, President Trump at the White House said, "Maybe we will send the military to Mexico," and so it, it became impossible to respond to these things because they just kept kept happening. Kept Plus, being Jared Kushner out. was
1: functioning as a kind right. of ambassador without yeah. portfolio, right. and you were kind of excluded from those discussions. Well,
2: what's interesting is I worked pretty closely with his office, including a number of conversations with him. And he came to see me during that visit. It was his first meeting; was to come see me but then i wasn't to attend the two meetings with the government so it was an odd amalgam right you're doing a great job we love what you're doing but but don't come with us when we go see the government and that's incredibly undermining to an ambassador yeah sure and eventually it got to the point where i just thought i am having no influence and when you do the cost benefit analysis of where you can have more influence and where you can sleep at night again i just i felt and charlottesville was was particularly just difficult I just want to say one thing about that because I I was trying to think of what to tweet, right? And what I wanted to tweet was a retweet from somebody else in government who might be saying something rational. And and, and I could only find a couple of examples and all they would have done is make it clear that I couldn't retweet the president. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, I wrote something very personal about my father as a Jewish soldier in World War II not fighting so that we could have neo-Nazis walking on the streets of of Charlottesville. And it was very positively received in Mexico, but it was sort of the only thing I felt I could say because my own government response was And was that before or after you had announced that you were leaving? Oh, that was before. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the beginning of, I think, many straws that eventually broke the camel's
1: back. What's happening at the border? I mean, what is really (laughs) happening at the border? Yeah. I mean, because it has become, you know, the, from the time the president descended on that elevator, uh, escalator, mm-hmm. it has been, you right. know, his, his... It's the go-to, go-to line, to, yes. right? But, yeah. but what is the reality of the border today? And what is
2: the answer? Because most of, the, most of this is flowing from Central America, not right Mexico. Mexico's numbers have been decreasing for a long time now, a number of years. Part of that's demographic. They're they a graying population, mm-hmm. something that actually, by the way, will happen in Central America in about five years. Mm-hmm. So, so this will ebb naturally, but I understand that's not necessarily what you want to wait for. Um, if you go down to the border, one of the things that always struck me in the years I spent there is it's not like Washington and it's not like Mexico City. It is more like each other on the two sides of the border than it is like the rest of their countries. It is a sort of third way. It is an incredible place because of the commerce that goes across the, the legal goods and, mm-hmm. and people. You know We're talking about 1.7 billion dollars of trade a day. Um, and so you know, everything we do to slow down humans also slows down legal commerce, which would be a disaster for us. The
1: portrait that we get is that there is this flood of this cascade of illegal... And
2: it's simply not true. Yes, the numbers are up. They're not yet up to where they were in 2014, but but they're up, there's no doubt. Um, Part of that is because our legal system does give people the right, and I hope will continue to, to petition for asylum. People are leaving a combination of economic situations and violence. And you have to sort that out because our laws treat those folks differently. Um, But the only way to really make a difference is to invest in Central America and in the causes of that migration. Um, And that's what Vice President Biden and the initiative on Central America was designed to do when we began it at the very end of the Obama administration. But that's a longer term problem. And Meanwhile, it seems to me that you, you you don't go around picking up, you know, immigrants who haven't committed any crime or are not high on a priority list, but you work as strenuously as you can with local governments in Central America and messaging about what you will get when you come here and what you won't and you do return some people. But because the, the traffickers, the, the the coyotes, they put out word that if you go, you can stay. Mm-hmm. That That's what people are told, despite what they might hear from the administration. Um, but Janet Napolitano said it right when she said, as governor of Arizona, you show me a 10-foot wall, I'll show you an 11-foot ladder. Mm-hmm. People are going to come if the economic incentives or the violence... Um, makes it such that that calculus of their children's lives, as bad as that trip is, it's better here.
1: Um, There's a new president in Mexico taking office. You mentioned Lopez Obrador, who uh, you know Mm -hmm. and who uh, has a reputation uh, as a a leftist, but uh, was uh, in in many ways a pretty conventional mayor of Mexico City, which... Which do you expect to see as president of Mexico?
2: (laughs) I think the short answer to that is both. I think it depends on the issue. I think we've already seen that he can be highly pragmatic and conventional and pro-business, if you will, pro-free trade on certain issues. He, you know, the peso stabilized almost immediately after his election, despite fears, and that's because he was reassuring the markets of what he was going to do. On the other hand... He has majorities in Congress. Um, I don't know what the check will be on him. And he is talking about direct democracy via plebiscite and referenda that I find deeply, deeply worrying. And part of the reason I find it worrying is watching Chavez do just that at the beginning of his own term we don't need representative democracy Mm -hmm. we're going to make that change the atlantic issue on is democracy dying has a great jeff rosen piece about um the decision between direct democracy and representative democracy and how direct democracy might work for you know 15 people in athens um a millennia or more ago but it results in sort of mob rule when you try it uh, for a larger group, and so I worry about some this of those. This was discussed at
1: some length uh, when our country came into being. Indeed, exactly.
2: Yeah, Madison, yeah. you know, talked extensively about this, and Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, and I do worry that that Lopez Obrador talks; his language is, you know, it sounds an awful lot like I alone can do. X or Y. Um, he is dismissive of institutions. Yeah. And I confess, Actually, I I'm an In fact, you heard some of that language from our own president. Exactly.
1: Um, exactly. NAFTA. Yes. Uh, we, I mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. The deal that was struck with Mexico, uh, the president called it far-reaching last week. It seemed pretty modest. And how was it as compared to, for example, the terms of the TPP, yeah. which... We pulled out of. It seemed to me we got more
2: absolutely under that
1: treaty from Mexico, because which is and Canada, (laughs) right? Which is the value of multilateral agreements.
2: Well, you're exactly right. TPP was, and this is what were our talking points under the end of the Obama administration. And I, I truly believe this. When people talk about modernizing NAFTA, TPP was the modernization of NAFTA. It gave us the things it updated. Put in digital commerce and and uh, you know talked about energy, intellectual property, gave us access to things in markets we've been closed out of. So in Canada, there's been all this talk about dairy. Well, the Canadians gave on dairy in TPP, which was really hard partly because the Japanese were opening up. Yeah, they got benefits from
1: other countries that were part of the TPP that offset what they were giving up to us.
2: So politically, you can sell something like that because you can tell your population, yes, but for the first time we got X and that's going to benefit more people. And so... When you pull out of TPP and now you essentially go back to the table with only two of those partners and say, we'd like the same thing, please, but with none of the benefits we were getting from the other nine players, it it is not necessarily surprising that we've struggled. But we've also made some demands that that frankly were just non-starters, the sunset clause, which Mm -hmm. had to be... So this is the, the, the agreement the fi- would sunset five after years, five years, which makes it all three parties explicitly wanted to, said to continue mm-hmm. it. So it reverses the onus in a sense. Mm-hmm. Instead of having to say if you want to get out, you, you have to act if you want to stay in, which gives no certainty for investors a- and things, uh, other things like that, which we had to back down on.
1: There's so much that I would like to pursue with you, but I, I, I think I should finish by asking you this. You've spent your entire life until just a few months ago, your entire professional life mm-hmm. uh, in the State Department in diplomacy. What do you see now? I mean, as you look at the State Department, there's been this outmigration of senior uh, people mm-hmm. in the State Department, and there's a there are fewer junior, uh, fewer incoming people applying for the foreign service, for mm-hmm. example. Um, what? How do you repair that?
2: It's worrisome to me, and I'm actually going to be working with the um, American Academy of Diplomacy and Tom Pickering on a, on some work that, that they're doing yeah. right, um, about what you do to, to rebuild. The thing that I worry about the most is, yes, you lost a bunch of senior folks, myself, Tom Shannon, Bill Brownfield, other people who've been ambassadors, etc., but we all had 30 plus years in. That's not a tragedy. It's a brain drain of a sort, but but we were ready to move on. But you're also losing a lot of young people. Not just people who aren't taking the exam, but they didn't have any incoming classes, and those are chosen from people who've taken the exam. And I had, oh I can't tell you how many officers in Mexico who came to me and said, What do I do? I don't think I should stay, you know, help me talk through this. And I said to them, look, you'll make your own decision, but i got to tell you, you need to stay. Um, The work you do every day is not, honestly, what I do. It's not Mm -hmm. something that's going to keep you awake at night because you disagree with it. It's important work on behalf of the American people. And if all the good people leave, then what's left simply continues to justify the anti-government types who think that you know, we shrink government down to till we can strangle it and drown it in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Um, I am worried about that, and we are going to have to increase our intake. I think fairly rapidly to 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 fill the gap. But there are still some extraordinary officers. You have to support them, and you have to listen to them. Pompeo is better at listening, certainly, than I think Secretary Tillerson was. But the policies have not changed, and the denigration of diplomacy has not changed and and that worries me greatly.
1: Well I want to thank you for being at the Institute of Politics and more than that and much more than that for devoting your life to this. Uh, As one who does believe in diplomacy uh, I know that we're so much stronger for the good men and women who have spent their lives through Republican administrations and Democratic administrations trying to represent America and its interests and the interests that we share with other countries Mm -hmm. around the world.
2: Well, I've had a great time doing it, and am thrilled to be a Pritzker Fellow here at IOP uh, to think about what comes next. Good
1: to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.